Well, Father, we come before you just grateful to be here today among God's people, your people. And Father, as we hear from your word, I pray that you will encourage and convict whichever the Spirit requires in our lives right now. We thank you for the clarity of Jesus' teaching, and I pray that you will just help us to be a sanctified people. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the year was 1993, and Jeff Foxworthy struck comedic gold with his album, You Might Be a Redneck. Okay? Are you familiar with these jokes? Right, if you thought that the last four words of the national anthem were gentlemen start your engines, you just might be a redneck. If you take your fishing pole to SeaWorld, you just might be a redneck. If you've got a home that's mobile and 12 cars that ain't, you just might be a redneck. Now, do we have any rednecks here? And when you're going to raise your hand, I'm a redneck. Andy Phipps, are you raising your hand? I singled you out. Right, and the great thing about rednecks is rednecks don't take themselves too seriously, and they freely laugh at themselves. But there's a group of people that don't really laugh at themselves and take themselves extraordinarily seriously, and you don't want to be one of these. And that's a Pharisee. We read about them in Luke chapter 11, and it's a little bit longer chapter. But Luke chapter 11, verse 37, to the end of the chapter. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went and reclined at the table, and the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also. For you load the people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who are entering, who were entering. And he went away from there. The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. 
Now, a Pharisee is a dirty word now, isn't it? I looked it up in the dictionary. To be a Pharisee or to be Pharisaical means to be marked by hypocritical, censorious, to be marked by hypocritical, censorious self-righteousness. Right? You don't want to be a Pharisee, but everybody wanted to be a Pharisee in the days of Jesus. There were four major movements during the time of Jesus. You had the, uh, the zealots, who were the political revolutionaries. You had the Essians, who were kind of the, the, the monks. You had the Sadducees, who were the ones who ran the temple establishment and got an appointment by Rome and the, the ruling class. But then you had the Pharisees, who were the people's pastors. They're the ones who believed in the whole Old Testament. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they were engaged with the people. They were the ones that when Jesus said in Matthew 5, 24, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When people heard that, more righteous than a Pharisee, I'm in big trouble. That was their thinking. And yet as the gospel progresses, you see that they really become the villains of the gospels. In fact, to call somebody a Pharisee these days is an insult, right? You don't want to be a Klansman, you don't want to be a Nazi, and you certainly don't want to be a Pharisee. And so it's really easy to look down on those Pharisees and think, I will never be a Pharisee. Now, if we're really honest, there's a greater pull to self-righteousness than you realize. In fact, I mean, there's kind of two kind of uh, ends of the spectrum, right? Some of you are tempted towards unrighteousness. You're tempted to party, to live it up, to live a sinful life. But then there's another pull, which is the pull of self-righteousness. I mean, think about it. Do you feel a greater pull for unrighteousness or self-righteousness in your life? And I'm just going to say it. Self-righteousness feels pretty good. I love feeling superior to other people, reviewing their faults in my mind, thinking about their deficiency in some way, seeing how they fall short, hearing the latest gossip about maybe this pastor and how all's not as well at their church. Or perhaps you have some, you have some issue that you really latch onto, where you can say, unlike other Christians, I care about social justice. Unlike other Christians, I care about personal holiness. Unlike other Christians, I'm gospel-centered. Unlike other Christians, I care about doctrine. Right? You can find one thing, and you use that one thing not to build yourself up, but to tear other people down so that you feel superior. Self-righteousness is addicting, isn't it? And it's also blinding. Because self-righteous people know that self-righteousness is wrong and they're so self-righteous they think that that's something that they see in other people but not themselves. So how do you know if you've crossed the line and you're a Pharisee? Well, this passage kind of gives us eight signs that reveal that you just might be a Pharisee. There's eight of them. You're more concerned about appearing godly than being godly. You selectively obey Let me get to number three here, keeping you in suspense. You seek religious glory. You infect others with self-righteousness. You impose heavy standards on others. You reject prophetic voices. 
You filter the truth and respond to correction with hostility. Now, to set this up, Jesus just indicted this generation for their unbelief, right? They kept on asking for signs, the sign of Jonah. He has intense opposition, and that opposition is really led by a group of people, the Pharisees, who are so concerned with their doctrine, so concerned with their understanding of the law, that they are unable to see the presence of God in their midst. They're unable to recognize the Messiah. They look at him with such a critical spirit that they don't see their own need for a Messiah, and they look at him with such a critical spirit that they lose the majesty of God, are unable to see what is clear and present in front of them, right? Self-righteousness is blind. And so Jesus comes into one of their homes at the invitation. He was invited to have lunch with him. And he does something kind of remarkable. While he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. But he neglected to do something. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Jesus did not ritually wash his hands. Now, we know a little background from this from the Gospel of Mark, specifically Mark 7, 3 through 5. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, just so you know, washing your hands was necessary if you touched some unclean fluid, some dead body or some dead corpse. They expanded this in the tradition of the elders. And verse 4, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of the cups and the pots and the copper vessels and the dining couches. And the idea was that if you were to touch food without ceremonially washing your hands, you were defiled and you defiled everything that you touched. Such a thing was not done in Israel. Now, imagine that you invite a world-famous pastor. He's speaking at our church at some conference, and you have the privilege of having him over for dinner. You make this big spread. You serve up all the food, and then you're kind of waiting for the signal. And the pastor just starts eating before the food was properly prayed for. Such a thing is not done in Israel. Does he not believe in prayer, right? We'd, we'd immediately have some judgmental thoughts about him, right? Jesus is intentionally doing this because he's making a point. He is assaulting the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. They care more about this ceremonial washing that's not even commanded in the scriptures than they do about some larger issues. And as he does, he gives eight signs to help all of us identify whether or not you might be a Pharisee. So you might be a Pharisee if you are more concerned with appearing godly than being godly. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside are full of greed and wickedness. Now they judge him because he did not do this external washing. And Jesus points out, That you are so infatuated with this external purity that you neglect the inside as well. There's some famous examples of this. Some of the Pharisees had impoverished parents. 
The scriptural responsibility is that you are to honor your mother and your father. But they came up with this ingenious way of getting around it. They declare everything they have, Corbin, dedicated to God. Therefore, I can't give you out of my resources because they're not mine anymore. They belong to God. And so they had this external purity, but they were impoverishing their parents. They were not honoring their parents. These Pharisees were so concerned about external deeds of righteousness that they forget about the heart. He says in verse 40, you fools, not a flattering term. Did he, not he who made the outside make the inside also? They give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So God cares about the outside and especially the inside. You know, it is possible, for instance, to dress modestly and still be vain. A number of years ago, my family was taking a hike in Branson, and when we emerged to the playground at the trailhead, we saw an Amish teenager in full Amish, Amish garb laying out on a rock sunning herself. It was deeply ironic. I almost took a picture, but my wife stopped me. <laughs> but you see the idea, right? She's conspicuously presenting herself in very modest attire. Right? God doesn't just want modest clothing, per se. He wants a modest heart. He cares about the outside, but he cares about the inside way more. And so he challenges. He says, but give as alms those things that are within. Now, this is a pretty difficult passage, but it basically talks about the inside heart. The inside heart, instead of being, being full of greed and wickedness, you care about justice and generosity. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler came to Jesus to impress him with his credentials, and Jesus kind of goes through the different Ten Commandments, and then he kind of nails him with, sell all that you have and give to the poor. Do you remember that? And then he went away, for he had a great many possessions. So, somebody's having a bad day, poor guy. So there's a great many possessions. He couldn't, he couldn't bring himself to part with his wealth. So the solution here is to give us alms, to have a heart that is almsgiving, to have a generous heart. The inside works its way out. You see, the Pharisees, they want to appear godly without being godly. And there's ways we can do that here, right? You learn the art of Jesus speak. You wear the Christian t-shirt. You're very expressive in worship. Perhaps you only read a, a certain version of the Bible. Or perhaps you, you hand out a gospel tract every single week, right? You look at this person, they appear to be godly, but inside it's a real different story, right? You have a quiet time every single day, but you fail to renew your mind with Scripture. You refuse to use four-letter words, but you have a heart that's critical and judgmental. Maybe you're not drinking alcohol, but you're not walking in the Spirit, having a generous heart that freely gives praise and glory to God and builds up the body of Christ, right? It's easy to appear spiritual. It's a lot harder to be spiritual, right? So, friend, if, if you're more concerned with appearing godly than being godly, you just might be a Pharisee. 
You also might be a Pharisee if you selectively obey. Verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, they're required that you tithe your agricultural produce. And so the fact that they're tithing rue and mint in the herb garden shows that they took this command remarkably seriously. But as they are focusing on this command, they're neglecting the greater commands that regard the the justice and the love of God. One commentator points out an irony that he found in the Episcopal Church, wherefore, for centuries, for millennia, they they forbade uh, women from serving as pastors and teachers. But then they made a modern turn a number of decades ago, and they said not only should women serve as pastors and priests, they said you had to agree with them serving as pastors and priests. In fact, you could not be a pastor or a priest if you had any mental reservations about women serving as pastors and priests. But it's okay to be a pastor or a priest and deny the resurrection. That's fine. You see that? You selectively obey. This is the man who is serious about contending for the faith, which is a biblical command. It's a good command. He knows the Bible better than you do. He's even understood the Greek. He can uh, basically let you know when you are taking a Bible verse out of context. If you get the Trinity wrong in any way, he'll be quick to point that out. But at home, he is domineering and demeaning towards his wife. Right? He selectively obeys. You see, if you selectively obey some commands and ignore the other ones, you just might be a Pharisee. You also might be a Pharisee if you seek religious glory. Verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplaces. Now, if you were a Pharisee in Israel, there was a special place for you. When you walked into a synagogue, there is a special seat in the front, right? You actually sat on stage so you can look at the audience. Everybody was commanded to give you a special greeting as prescribed by the teaching of the elders. And, and frankly, this can be intoxicating. I will admit the fact that all of you are quietly listening to me for 45 minutes feels pretty good. Pastor Appreciation Month, it's not too late by the way, can get to your head. Now, some of you think that, well, since I'm, I'm not a pastor, I don't have to worry about this. But friend, you don't have to be rich to be greedy, right? <laughs> and you don't have to have spiritual authority to love the glory, or at least long and covet for us. I mean, sometimes there, there's this deep desire to be part of what's perceived to be the inner circle of the church. And these are the people who say, nobody reaches out to me. But what they really mean is the people of the inner circle don't want to be my best friend like I want them to be my best friend. Some people... Delight in being holier than the pastor. Oh, we loved it when Pastor Dave talked about how much he loves Pastor Appreciation Month. I would never do that. Sometimes people get upset when their contributions aren't properly appreciated. Or perhaps you share something in Bible study and the leader says, I don't know about that, and then looks to somebody else. And you're like, Right? You don't have to be rich to be greedy, and you don't have to be in a position to receive glory to long for it. If you love and seek 
religious glory, you just might be a Pharisee. You also might be a Pharisee if you infect others with self-righteousness. Woe to you, verse 44, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, if there was anything that was unclean in ancient Israel, it was a dead body. Numbers 19, 16, whoever in an open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. He did not want to touch a dead body. He did not want to touch a grave. If you did, you are unclean. And so the idea is that people are making contact with the Pharisees, and as they do, they walk away defiled and unclean. And what's interesting is, is that the ones who are doing the defiling don't realize it. You see, when somebody is self-righteous, they have this earnest conviction that I have something to offer and I have something to give. When people come to a self-righteous person, they get spiritual counsel, but usually the spiritual counsel aims them towards what? More self-righteousness. Somebody feels like they um, are superior to other people because they have superior spiritual knowledge and insight, unlike these other rubes. Or perhaps they're the only ones who kind of see things correctly. And you get a community of complaint or a community of critics, right? And you could pick the target, the evangelical church at large, this seminary, this Bible teaching, the leadership of this church, you name it. But it's a community of critics and you think that you all sit around and talk about how inferior these other people are and you feel pretty good about yourselves. But what's happening is you're defiling other people by spreading your self-righteousness, Right, for self-righteousness to really get what you want, which is glory, you need to have other people affirm you, right? And so there's often a desire to try to pull people into your circle, to have other people you commiserate with, and as a result, they are defiled as well as you. So if you tend to infect others with self-righteousness, right, you just might be a Pharisee. You also might be a Pharisee if you impose heavy standards on others. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Now, lawyer is another term for a a scribe. They were more technically trained than your Pharisees at large, but they were usually a subgroup of the Pharisees. Uh, We read about them in Luke 20, 46 through 47. Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast." who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they receive the greater condemnation. Now, they were showy just like the Pharisees, had spiritual privileges just like the Pharisees. And, and this lawyer who's siding with the Pharisee feels insulted because the Pharisees are being insulted and he expects an apology, right? You know, I'm being insulted here, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? And he said, woe to you lawyers also. There's plenty of insults to go around. Now it's your turn. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So they take a command like do not work on the Sabbath and have all these restrictions about what you can and cannot do. And then Jesus' disciples, they walk on the Sabbath. They're hungry, and what do they do? They, They pick grain so that they can eat. 
So instead of saying, you must be hungry, let us feed you, they say, that is forbidden, you pagan. They have these heavy standards they impose on others, and they don't even want to help them out. I mean, that can happen today. You have a family that reads Deuteronomy 6-7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And this is a good command that's reemphasized in the, in the New Testament. And they come to the conclusion that it is the parents' responsibility to educate their children in the ways of the Lord. So you, either, you homeschool, and if you can't homeschool, uh, you send them to Christian school, but it's a sin to send people to public school. It's a thing. And what happens is they are able to take what they're able to do because of the time and the talent and the ability to afford maybe tuition, impose it on other people, and burden other mothers, making them feel like failures because they send their kids to public school and don't lift a finger to help them. See, one thing about placing heavy burdens on other people is that when you place a burden on other people that you're able to achieve, it's a way of distinguishing yourself. You know, not everybody can do it the way we did it, because they're not as holy as us. But nice try. Right? If you have a habit of placing heavy burdens and expectations on other people, but don't lift a finger to help them, you just might be a Pharisee. You might be a Pharisee if you reject prophetic voices. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. These lawyers and Pharisees would honor a man like Isaiah. Isaiah was a man who spoke truth to power, who confronted the powers that be on their apostasy, who, who confronted Israel on their worship of idols. And by building the tombs, they basically signal that if we existed in Israel at the time of Isaiah, we would have stood by Isaiah. Now, what's really interesting is the number one sin that led to the exile was idolatry. And after the exile, idolatry was past tense. You don't really see this idol worship going on in the Gospels. So it was really easy for them to, to basically point the finger at their fathers for worshiping idols when they themselves aren't tempted to do that. But what Jesus brings up, he says, So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. The heart of unbelief for the fathers was their unbelief, and their unbelief led to persecution of the prophets who were sent to them. He goes on to say, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. In the wisdom of God, he sends prophets, prophetic voices, to speak the truth to power, to confront the powers that be, to confront the sins of the age, which is some manifestation of unbelief. They refuse to believe the message from God back then. They're refusing to believe the message of God right now. The issue is not the idolatry or some past tense sin. It is the present unbelief in this generation that is shown by a violent opposition to the messengers of God. 
so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. For from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Abel, first prophet who was martyred, killed by Cain. Zechariah, the last prophet killed in the book of Chronicles. And if you look at the, the Hebrew Bible at the time, the first book would have been Genesis and the last one would have been Chronicles. He's basically saying from Genesis to Revelation, you've always responded to unbelief. You are no better than them. And the fact that you say you would have sided with the prophets just shows how blind you are. You see, it's really easy to love a dead prophet because a dead prophet can't speak present truth to power, can they? People love past tense prophets. And, and there's different ways that this could show itself, like the person who loves their past tense pastor. Oh, my past tense pastor was right up there with Jesus. He cared for me. He shepherded me. He would never accuse me of being a Pharisee. He was tender and warm. But you know what? If your past tense pastor perhaps knew a little bit more about your life, you might be surprised at what he would say to you. Some people are drawn to their podcast pastor who preaches at a safe distance away from them and doesn't know their life. This is a pastor that was carefully curated to basically agree with all of their positions. They love that pastor. He gets it right. And if getting it right means they agree with you, that might be a sign that you don't necessarily worship God, but an idealized version of yourself, right? <laughs> I love that pastor. He never disagrees with me. Or perhaps you love your president's pastor. You love it when he, when he preaches against homosexuality. Says that men are men and women are women. Talks about the evils of murdering the unborn. But he gives a sermon on racism. Oh, man. This is not just an agree to disagree disagreement. This is the how dare he disagreement. See, here's the deal. If you enjoy listening to preaching that convicts other people, but you don't necessarily like to listen to preaching that convicts you, you just might be a Pharisee. You might be a Pharisee if you filter the truth. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who are entering. Now, a key obviously provides access. To get into a locked room, you have to have the key. And the Pharisees and the lawyers were the gatekeepers. They held the key to the kingdom, so to speak. And often this key was mediated by their understanding of not only the, the scriptures, but the commentary on the scriptures. When you talk about the tradition of the elders, it's something called the Talmud, right? It is the teachings of various rabbis that help you understand how to properly apply the scripture. And what was happening was they were determining that Jesus is clearly not the Messiah because he's not washing his hands before this meal as the filter to the scriptures indicates. And so people come to them for knowledge and they're actually obscuring their knowledge with their commitment to this prior filter, right? And this can happen to the best of us. It is really easy to read the Bible with a filter, 
right? And here are some filters. Some people would say that the Bible was written by the winners of history. It was written by men, primarily, who oppressed others. Therefore, we need to read it critically, right? Through a critical lens. And we need to understand that any agreement that agrees with the oppressed is the most righteous conclusion, right? That is one critical way of reading it. Conversely, others would, you know, come in with the idea that, that liberals are the spawn of Satan, and that any agreement that might agree with the liberals is dangerous. Therefore, you can't go wrong if you go right. And the most conservative understanding of the scripture is the one that we should take. Or perhaps, you know, this Bible is an ancient book full of so much mystery that none of us can really understand it. We need uh, maybe the magisterium or some traditions that will help us make sense of what the Bible teaches. Or perhaps we need to draw upon a well-crafted creed or catechism. But if the scriptures can't contour your understanding of the filter, then the filter, well, the Bible is a servant of the filter, and so the filter is a servant of the Bible. Right? If you hold to your tradition of the elders, whatever it might be, if you put a lens on top of the Bible and hold to it dogmatically, and you filter the truth through it, you just might be a, a Pharisee. You also might be a Pharisee if you respond to correction with hostility. 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things. The scribes and the Pharisees didn't really care for Jesus' teachings, did they? Jesus gets up and leaves, and, and the image is that they were pressing him hard. It's almost like they were surrounding him, putting their finger in his chest and saying, what about the resurrection? What about the Sabbath? Do you pay taxes to Rome? And then they would lie in wait to catch him in something he might say. They're trying to lay a trap so, they, so that they could nail him to the wall. Or to be more precise, nail him to the cross. They didn't like what he had to say. Friend, when a sermon gets a little bit too close to home, how do you, how do you respond? Or if someone confronts you on your sin, how do you respond? Do you confront the confronter? What about you? Do you dissect the confrontation? You may be right, but your tone, your tone was harsh. You become embittered towards them. Avoid them. You're secretly resentful that they brought it up. Do you discredit them? You closely watch their lives for any inconsistency so that you can cry hypocrite and disregard everything that they have to say. Has anyone ever successfully confronted you? Are you easy to confront or correct? If you're not easy to confront, you just might be a Pharisee, right? Do we have any Pharisees here? Anybody? Okay, we, got, we have about five honest people. I need to keep on, maybe I need to do, no, just kidding, <laughs> right? Honestly, just be realistic here. 
are you more likely to skew towards unrighteousness or self-righteousness? Now, if you skew towards self-righteousness, and I put myself in that category, I've got some good news for you, okay? Number one, Jesus loves Pharisees. Did you know that? Jesus loves Pharisees. Now, does he rough them up? You know, some sins are such that you kind of need to rough people up. When somebody is caught in sexual sin, they just become stupid. You have to rough them up. Shake them out of it because the pool is so great. Self-righteousness is in that same category. When somebody is self-righteous, it's like they just don't get it. You bring it up, you bring it up, you bring it up, they just don't get it. I was talking to a friend of mine who was confronting somebody on self-righteousness, and he just found himself yelling at the person. He says, Dave, I don't know what happened. I said, I know. When people don't see it and you care about them, sometimes you get passionate because you need to wake them up. Right? Jesus wasn't just being rude here, was he? He does the woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. He takes a harsh tone towards them because he's trying to shake them out of their self-righteousness. Jesus loves Pharisees. And you know what? He redeems Pharisees. When we go to heaven, we're going to see some Pharisees. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, then the most famous Pharisee of them all, Saul, eventually Paul. If you're a Pharisee, friend, it's not too late. Jesus still loves you. Secondly, the fact that you see it in yourself is a very good sign. The fact that you can see some of your self-righteousness, that you're aware of it, you're disturbed by it, that is a great sign. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? If you confess your sin, there's hope for you. In fact, I would encourage you to share your struggle with other people. I struggle with self-righteousness in these areas because that is the most unpharisaical thing to do. Anytime you confess your sin, you confess your weakness, you're putting unrighteousness and self-righteousness to death. Right? So the fact that you recognize it and you see it, there's a lot of hope for you. Thirdly, pursue graciousness. Graciousness. Pursue graciousness. If you receive grace, dispense grace. If you struggle with self-righteousness, this should be your new life verse. Titus 3.3. 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Does that describe you at one point in your life? Yeah, I put myself right there. Right, when you look at the thoughts, coveting, envy, bitterness, anger, all of that is true. But that is why we need a Savior. And this is why self-righteousness is so dangerous. Self-righteousness leads people to the illusion that either they don't need a Savior or they can save themselves. But we are so bad we needed some intervention. Titus 3, 4 through 7. And when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out in us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, the best way to give grace is to experience grace. And people who put to death their self-righteousness and realize that I am only saved by a righteousness that comes from without, not from within, who are grateful 
at the prospect of heaven, not because they earned it or obligated God to give it, because God freely gave it to us. When you experience that grace, it's easy to give lots of grace to others. And if you're someone who's prone to be gracious and to give grace, you just might not be a Pharisee. And that's our hope. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you, and I pray that you'll sanctify our church so that we're not a bunch of Pharisees. Um, I pray for anyone here who was convicted by this, and I include myself, that you will help us to to know that the answer to our unrighteousness is not more self-righteousness, but Jesus Christ that we will be drawn close to you for forgiveness and grace and transformation, that you'll just begin a beautiful journey in all of us, that we might be found to be people who really value you, who, who value the great commands to love you and to love our neighbor, that we'll be a people who have experienced tremendous grace so that we can give it. We pray for all these things in, in Christ's name. Amen.